welcome to the ninth installment and the final installment of the key narrative, I suppose we can say, of this rerunning of the rivalry, where myself, you let me tell you something, co-host Lorca Mullen, and your expert in other kinds of maintaining risk controls, and let me tell you something, co-host <laughs> Simon Cross. Brilliant. Great Di- start. Discuss the matches between Hiroshi Tanahashi and Kazuchika Okada. And we're at the final Wrestle Kingdom main event between the two. It's the 4th of January 2016. And it's essentially the moment that all of the previous matches, arguably even the first match where Okada's a young lion, have been leading up to. Wouldn't you say, Simon? Yeah, we're in the crescendo of our series, which is weird when you consider that we do have uh, a fair few follow-up episodes coming up. And of course, those episodes take the narrative and go down a different direction to it, but it's almost like a spin-off series. They're like the Obi-Wan Kenobi Disney Plus series of the story. Sort of like the epilogue in uh, Red Dead Redemption, uh, both one and two, I'd say. This is the Ewoks playing drums on the Stormtrooper skulls and everything. I, don't, I won't say that Gado is the Ewok, but, you know. <laughs> now, that's lazy. That's lazy. For a man that's a booking genius, it seems like the most he can come up with as far as on, you know, ringside encouragement is, come on, Rainmaker! Come on! That's about it, really. And he does jump around a lot like a child that's had a, one too many fruit shoots. But there we are. Yeah, Mickey from Rocky, he's not. No. But he's also not Bill Alfonso, I suppose, which would be the other end of the spectrum. No, we do not encourage talking about Bill Alfonso's whistle on this show. There were moments during the Netherlands-Argentina match where I was reminded of Mr. Alfonso and thought maybe he was officiating this match as well as his old days as an in-ring referee. (laughs) But this is a match refereed by the referee's referee, Red Shoes Umino. Uh, Manu, I assume, refereed every one of these matches, I would have thought. I would have to double-check. I'm not entirely sure about the first one. And if we do talk, as we were saying about last match, the defining image of that was Okada's tears as he was walking away. The defining image of this match is one that literally Red Shoes points at when (laughs) it happens. It's a funny thing that that risk control... What what do you think the, the risk control is supposed to represent in that moment. It's not like it meant Tanahashi was suddenly incapacitated. Is it meant to be a sign of his resilience? Like he won't let go. He He's found it and he's it's his moment to shine. He's found that extra 1% to be the guy. And it's through not letting go of those moments where you're, you're in control. It is representing tenacity. Yeah. It's representing... It, that's, it's literally... Well, it's not literally, but it is the cherry on the cake in this scenario. I guess it's because in the previous Wrestle Kingdom, the story of that match was Okada letting it slip through his fingers after he'd done all the right things in the previous run of matches that they'd had in 2013 that led to Tanahashi not being able to even challenge him anymore. Yeah. Until he wins a G1 Climax. Basically, Tanahashi did a hard reset on the IWGP title. It's like, if I hold down the power, da- the volume down button and the power button, I'll basically get to challenge again. Yeah, it's always finding that way out. I remember when I was, when me and my brothers, the big battle was who had control of the remote because whoever had the control of the remote had control of what was on the telly. So we would say, don't touch the remote if we had to leave the 
broom. But then it would be like, well, if it's resting on a cushion and I take the cushion and if I then have a pencil and so I'm controlling what the remote's doing with the pencil. I'm not touching. But I am controlling what's on the TV. Everyone with siblings will realise the lengths that a rule can be stretched to. (laughs) I know that we're prone to our Simpsons quotes, but it is, you know, as I'm leaving this room, I will be doing this with my fists. And if you get in the way of these fists, it's your own fault. Oh, yeah? Well, I'm going to be kicking air like this. And if you enter the space in which that air is, it's your fault. So that's who we're comparing Tanahashi to in this moment. Yeah. It's funny we're going straight to the end, but I suppose it's it's all been leading up to this moment, isn't it? And so let's just talk about that, because I do love this match. It's the first of the Wrestle Kingdom matches that I would feel comfortable giving five stars to. Mm. It feels the most epic. It's not one-sided for one half either. It's kind of a back and forth throughout it. Because I think the key thing is it's like they're both challengers ultimately at this point. Each one has something the other one wants. Yes. Okada has the IWGP heavyweight title. Tanahashi still has the sense of being the ace insofar as you don't get it. To beat the man, you've got to beat the man. And not only that, you've got to beat the man in the biggest spotlight possible. Exactly. Yeah. There's a reason that Vincent Mann would usually try to book the ones that he wanted to push to the moon. He booked their first title win as being at WrestleMania. Or if WrestleMania is too far away, like it was, say, with Diesel, or it didn't exist like it was with Hulk Hogan, he has them do it at Madison Square Garden. And that was a big problem he had with Roman Reigns, that he kept putting it off, putting the belt on Reigns, until he wanted to give him his coronation moment at WrestleMania. Like the Ultimate Warrior got, like Randy Savage got, like Shawn Michaels got, like Stone Cold Steve Austin got, like John Cena and Batista got, etc., etc., Whereas, with, as we said, with New Japan, it's not... Winning the IWGP title the first time is only a step on the way, it seems, for them. Yes. That there's more to it than that. That the sense of what you do as the champion is as important as what you do as reaching the championship. Which is, I think, where often AEW fell off short, where has fallen short with like Hangman Page and others at Wardlow. That they know what to do up to giving him the belt, but then they don't have ideas of how to work with them. There have been a couple of drop balls there, yes, yeah. And similarly, that was always a problem with WCW. Whenever they would pull the trigger on Sting, which they did multiple times, they just didn't really know what to do with Sting as champion afterwards, really. TNA did that with AJ Styles. He had a few, like, coming out moments. Styles must have had, like, at least four or five over a 12-year period. There was his one, the first one, where he won it against Jeff Jarrett, where he was kind of their first self-made star. There was one over Kurt Angle, I remember, where they did like the whole crowd come into the ring to celebrate moments, and Christopher Daniels is there with him. There's the one against Bully Ray, where they were trying to replicate the Sting against the NWO storyline. Yeah. They've done it time after time, and then just six months down the line, as often as not, he's suddenly challenging for the X Division title, or he's turned heel for some reason. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. He's wearing Ric Flair robes to the ring. Oh, oh god i've forgotten about that one <laughs> but oh christ new japan haven't done that they gave okada what you thought was like oh this is way too much with his first win but what we realize now in hindsight is they would 
getting to that moment over literally four years. Yeah. You know, he challenged him at Wrestle Kingdom in 2012. He finally dethroned him at Wrestle Kingdom 2016. So over a four-year period, we've been told this story of Okada. Both of Okada reaching that height and also of Tanahashi falling off that perch. Yeah. And, well, holding on to that perch by the skin of his teeth at times and, like, digging his nails in before literally being prized off of it. Yeah. I mean, him going back onto it after King of Pro Wrestling is like... I don't know. I don't know how you would describe it. That, that's the all is lost moment, I suppose, for him. Yeah. Whereas for Okada, the all is lost moment was Tanahashi's last year for return. Yeah. Like I've said so many times, that's the beauty of New Japan. The characters are their own. They're doing their own stories, but they're also a character in someone else's story. Like we all are in life. Yeah. Whilst we're the lead in our own stories, we're the supporting characters in a dozens of other people's stories. We're mm. nemeses, we're light comic relief, we're key supporting players, we're co-leads if you're a lifelong partner with someone. We're, we're anti-heroes to some, we're, we're, we're white knights to others, and we're dark knights to others. I mean, the other story that's bubbling underneath this at the moment, as this match is going on, and then becomes sort of the defining storyline for many people after this, is how both of these characters lie in relation to Tetsuya Naito and what they rep- what they both represent. You know, the next Wrestle Kingdom after this is Naito facing Tanahashi for the Intercontinental title. And for Naito, it's one story. For Tanahashi, it's this constant trying to stay relevant and trying to carve a position when they're no longer, they're clearly past their physical prime. And he's continuing to do it. Who am I now? <laughs> yeah. And he's continuing to do it over with title reigns, you know, involving the never open weight title, the United States title, I wouldn't be surprised. Maybe he and Shota Umino could end up being in some sort of sensei-disciple relationship and maybe they'll end up doing a tag team title run. You know, they are wrestling together at this upcoming Wrestle Kingdom in a six-man tag. That's that's interesting considering, obviously, Tanahashi's relationship with John Moxley in the US title as well. I'm just saying for my sake. I love this match, although I would still... Of the four matches of them, I've given five stars to. Because I am going five stars on their Dominion match. Yeah. So it's Dominion, Invasion, Attack, King of Pro Wrestling, and this. This is either third or fourth place of those five star matches. Mm. It's still Invasion, Attack, and King of Pro Wrestling as jostling for first and second, and this and Dominion jostling for third and fourth i suppose how about for you uh i would give this five stars i think as a match it it does have all those epic elements like you say it's difficult when it's the end of a story though like that's that's never usually the best part really it depends how you do it you know i mean most wrestling blow-off matches are what you're supposed to remember i would have thought Mm, i'm talking more stories in general but you are right that you are meant to lead to a blow-off in, in the world of professional wrestling. There are very few shows and films, or, or well, maybe more films than shows, but there are very few of them that completely 100% nail the landing. Yeah. I'd argue Mad Men is one of them. I really love the Breaking Bad ending, but I can see why there are some things that people have some issues with. And I really enjoyed Al Camino, but other people had problems with that as well. Mm. I haven't seen the ending of Better Call Saul yet. That's hopefully my big project over the Christmas and 
New Year period. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Game of Thrones, don't even get me fucking... Ah! But also, to be fair, it's not the end in and of itself. Like, literally eight months later, they have another match. But it is the end of this sense of... You know, it's the Highlander, there can be only one. And this was the... Yes, Okada is the guy that is the... The face of the company, essentially. Yeah. That he has taken that torch from Tanahashi the same way that Tanahashi... I suppose most symbolically took it from Yuji Nagata. That was kind of the torch-passing moment because he won the IWGP heavyweight title and then his first reign was ended by Nagata. Then they had the G1 Climax final that Tanahashi won and then they had the the rubber match that Tanahashi won. Okay. And that was really it for the third generation. Nakanishi did win it off of Tanahashi, but then Tanahashi literally won it back like a few weeks later. and that I think that was the title change before... He he lost it to Okada. So. Oh, I see, I see, I see. Can that, that and that must annoy Tanahashi, like in storyline terms, because you, you finally seal the deal. You then you have that brief aberration, win the belt back, and they're like, "Oh yeah, you're cruising, you're cruising." And then this cocky prick comes from nowhere and like pisses on all your chips. Well, that was the thing. Like Okada came out at Tanahashi's most triumphant moments. And yeah. stole it from him, tried to steal it from him almost immediately, and everything since then. But, built unlike it. Naito's most triumphant moment, he didn't batter him. Okada ends up dropping the title to Naito, like, five months later after this. In mm. the, But that was also what we thought was Naito's triumphant moment of finally winning the IWGP heavyweight title. He himself pisses all over. And then it just becomes the start of an even longer story between them that also takes in multiple Wrestle Kingdom chapters along the way. But yeah, I think one of the things I did notice with this match was it was maybe the first time where there was a slight air of we always mark as the one that's like a disappointing follow-up in the Misawa Kawada 97 match. I guess for the first time there was a forearm exchange in this match that didn't feel unique enough that I wasn't a little bit annoyed at it as a cliche, but maybe it was this match that then like how the 97 Kawada Masawa match was just suddenly head drop city. Yeah. It's just, it's like a, a slightest of nitpicks. It's nothing like that compared to others. And that's more just other people screwing up. But it was just like, it was the first time where I saw a strike exchange where I was like, there's nothing that feels like this separates them from all the other strike exchange standing there and elbowing each other moments that we see from everyone else. It's one of those awkward situations because we're six years removed from this match being like, live and strike exchanges have not only jumped the shark they've jumped the whale as well since then in new japan especially i mean um some of the shingo ishii ones most of their matches was forearm exchanges at one point i'm sure of it again this is another one where we've already talked about this in the past so check out that episode and i'll again i'll link it in the description so i don't want to go over too much of the blow for blow stuff Again, I do like how they always change things up. They change things up a little bit. Like when the bell rings, neither man even moves for the first few seconds. Yes. Yeah. I don't remember them ever doing that where... You know, I mean, did you see that thing during the COVID period where there was a Noah GHC title match between uh, Kazuyuki Vegeta and Go Shiozaki where they literally stood and stared at each other for 30 minutes? I heard about it. Yeah, it didn't go that I've way. never watched it. <laughs> 
But it was that moment now that they just know each other so well that there's almost... And this is even more so with the uh, follow-up match, the the one that we'll talk about next. There is that sense of, like... You know that bit in Sh- the second Sherlock Holmes film where he and... I didn't see the second one. Well, he and Moriarty basically verbalise or think out what their fight would be without actually doing anything. <laughs> it's all during that time Sherlock's like lighting his pipe and he's thinking, okay, these are the things that I would do to beat you in a fight. He doesn't say it out loud, he just thinks it. And we see it in his mind's eye, but then we see Moriarty in his mind's eye thinking like, well, I know you're going to do that, so I would do this. Yeah. And it would end with him beating Sherlock. So they like played it out in their heads, will they even do it? So Sherlock just shoves them both over the bridge. Um, <laughs> uh, or it's like that other bit, uh, one of my favourite uh, gags in Futurama, when uh, Bender visits Robot's house at his old <laughs> college. And there's two of the nerds there, including Fatbot. I remember Matt Groening said he found a hilarious concept. Like, why would you design a robot to be fat? <laughs> <laughs> but it's them standing out, like looking over a chessboard. Um, one looks up and says, mate in 143 moves. And he goes, ah, oh, poo, you win again. Yeah, another defeat for fat bot. <laughs> yeah. When I get nervous, I get hungry. <laughs> Robot <Robert-ish! laughs> But again, it's like, Tanahashi still coming up with the reinventions and best symbolized by, Okada doesn't dominate in the first half as he did before. Mm. It's even Stevens pretty much from the start. And Tanahashi again, goes to the knee and it's it's funny because I you know the two favorite matches of mine of theirs are the ones where he goes after the arm but it does make sense for him to go after the knee even though Okada used to be able to evade was to go through a period of being able to evade it because every time that he's won it's been in a match where he's targeted the knee yeah that ultimately is what he decides to go with for this one because it's I mean if it wears down his like drop kick and they're talking about like the power that he generates in his legs for the rainmaker there are, there, are, there are, there's logic to it yeah it's just about slowing him down ultimately and that's that does it for him and even though he keeps going after his arm as much as he hurts his arm in each of those matches okada was still able to pin him with a rainmaker yeah so he's just willing to go through the pain but in the match where he's gone for his knees to the point that he can't get up in time, he's been able to hit him with high fly flows and keep him down in the mats. So that's why it makes sense to go for it. And again, he keeps changing up. My favourite moment being that he literally does a standing high fly flow onto his leg. Yep. I like that. That that was a beautiful moment. Because it just showed like how essential... It is to seize any gap in this match for both men. You're not even having the vanity that, like, I've got to finish you off with this beautiful move. It's like, if a version of this move is just something I do in the midst of just kicking and stomping away at your leg, I will use it. Yes, yeah. Speaking of high fly flows, this is the first match we see uh, Okada hit one. And I think, in terms of that extra 1%, that I mentioned earlier with when we talked about risk control. I think that's a kind of thing as well, because he's been hit by his own Rainmaker in previous matches from Tanahashi. So I think it's that competitive pride thing, that unspoken element between the two men. It's like, all right, you can hit my thing. That, so that means you've scouted my thing, and these while you're countering it all the time. I can hit your thing, and show, and like I can you know execute it better than you. I can fly across the ring better than you. I don't know about doing it better than them as just as much as it is just using it as, a, as an insult like just getting that little dig in i think that's there as well 
because it's not a quick counter move like Tanahashi hitting a Rainmaker, that there's a bit more of setup to it. That I I perceive it this way that it's Okada doing an athletic flex as well. Means of surprising Tanahashi as well. Like he'd be expecting a top rope elbow drop, and instead he gets a, a splash. Yeah, that's fair. That's that's fair as well. I yeah. also love that. One of the things we we were saying about one of the reasons that Tanahashi stopped doing the knee attack was because every time he used to do it with his opening move, his opening gambit would nearly always be a dragon screw leg whip or, more often, a low drop kick to the knee. Yeah. That'd be when he would do it, even back to the first match when he just decides he'll do a bit of targeting his knee, he starts off with a low drop kick. Mm. This time, he does it with a move he's never done in any of the matches before, which is that Ric Flair atomic drop onto the knee move. Yes. So he's able to start the knee work without having to worry about hitting a drop kick at the right time. That you know, when he was able to finally hit his in the knee in their in one of their other Wrestle Kingdom matches, I think it was. Oh, no, in their G one match, it was because they were quite tired and the match had gone long, but that didn't give him enough time to work his knee long enough to incapacitate him. Mm. Whereas with this one, because it does go very early into the match, it's like, well, he knows he's going to come with a drop kick. He knows to anticipate the dragon screw leg whip. He doesn't know to anticipate that. And he does it from a headlock. Yeah. So, like, right at the start of the match as well, the move that had always defined the opening battles between them was always the headlock. Mm. And then, sticking to Ric Flair form, he immediately follows that up with a chop block as well. And he, he doesn't always chop block in his knee attacks. That usually denotes like a viciousness or a desperation in Tanahashi's offense in this uh, series of matches we've seen. Okada comes up with new ways of doing stuff or stuff to surprise him. Like we were saying in the previous Wrestle Kingdom, it was the first time that Tanahashi had been able to evade the charging boot over the guardrail because he'd already hurt his knee, so it was slowly mm. bad, so he hit him with a low drop kick. This time, Okada does boot Tanahashi over the guardrail. And just as at the previous Wrestle Kingdom, when Tanahashi had knocked him over the guardrail, Tanahashi hit a high fly flow to him on the outside. Yeah. Okada doesn't go that far, but he does surprise him with a crossbody going over the guardrail instead. And that's the first time we've seen him do that. So it's like his little bit of revenge, but also his way of surprising him. And also when he does the drop kick that sends Tanahashi to the outside, it's not his usual corner drop kick, which again, Tanahashi usually has scouted at this point. But it's when Tanahashi's on the apron, he does like the Chris Jericho second row springboard drop kick to send him to the outside instead. I have it down as like more like a disaster kick kind of thing. I thought it was a drop kick. It was a drop kick bit. That for me, it was like, yeah, you're right. It is Jericho esque, but Jericho sort of does it to the guy that's on the apron. I have in my head. I, I, I don't know. I just wrote down disaster. It, it just reminded me of a disaster kick as well. Yeah, and also Tanahashi doing his usual high fly flow to the outside for the first time. Okada actually stops him. Yeah. And also for the first time, I think, ever, Okada does his flapjack and Tanahashi's able to avoid that as well. He, like, sort of shifts his weight so that he can't fall forward. Can't be jacked, basically, Mm, yeah. mm. But again, he's just always fighting for those different ways. So when they're fighting on the top rope, Okada's able to drop him down and they're sort of in between either side of the corner. And that's really good. Like, Okada's completely trapped. So Tanahashi does the dragon screw leg whip and then brings it back into the ring. And it's always been this sense that Tanahashi has a better understanding of how to use the ring to his advantage. I always love wrestlers that will do that. They'll do little inventive things with the ring. Yeah. He traps Okada's leg in the ropes in the corner and is stomping away at the knee to the point that Okada literally has to call 
red shoes over to help get him out. Like, that's how <laughs> incapacitated he is. It's like calling teacher to tie your shoelaces. <laughs> sir! <laughs> He's hurting me, sir. And red shoes, like, just a constant throughout this series in terms of just, just being brilliant as a ref. Yeah, again, he just, he does like a, he does a second rope version of the high fly flow onto both knees as well. Yep. And, you know, he just, he, he does a sling blade on the apron instead. So it's always this thing, even after he's won the previous match, like how he'd won the previous Wrestle Kingdom match, then when it comes to Invasion Attack, he changes that by going after the arm for the first time. Even then, he's like, I've got to keep changing things up to get this guy because he very quickly adapts. Yes, and ultimately Okada has to be true to Okada's self. It seems, but not so far. Like, like we say, the story of the previous match was that he was too cocky and arrogant, and that was his undoing. This time, he does have like one moment where he gets him with the moon. He's got that cocky look on his face, and then like immediately, the yeah, he dodges Tanahashi's low drop kick, so he's able to do that, even though he's been going for the knee already. But and then like he's got a smile on his face, goes for a senton and. Tanashi immediately moves out of the way, so it is... A... He very nearly pays for his cockiness right at the start as well. He does his, like, uh, chest pats, and Tanahashi swings, like, a haymaker-style punch that, if it had connected, wouldn't have looked good for him. <laughs> yeah, I just like that they both men continue to change things up as it's going along. When Okada does the Rainmaker pose in this match, it's not because he's in full control and thinks it's all over. It's almost like a summoning up some more power because he's, like... It's after he does a top rope elbow, but it, like, he even takes a moment to get his catch his breath before he climbs the rope. So you, yeah, those little moments as well, because you know that these guys can dodge moves and, and escape them. That, that gives you that anticipation as well. Will that one second be his undoing? And usually it is, but not always. It is. Yeah, it's like to psych him up, like you say. He's like going super cyan, as like we like referred to. He's he's going through the gears. It's not quite hulking up. It's not quite shaking the ropes, but it's. I think a lot of wrestlers have it, though, don't they? They have that moment that they can use, like that, that, that come on sort of thing. There's a rare instance of them actually referring to the G1 match in particular, because there were very few unique moves in that. But one of them was where Okada goes for the drop kick and Tanahashi catches the feet. He lands. In the G1 match, he went for the Texas Cloverleaf from there, but maybe because, you know, it's a short time limit, so you don't have the... T- and at that point, he was like, I need to get him into the submission hold now. Yeah. But instead, before he does that, Tanahashi weakens him by doing a couple of grounded dragon screws before then applying the Texas Cloverleaf. I kind of wish that uh, Tanahashi had won one of these matches with a Texas Cloverleaf submission. Mm. Because it just would have given a bit more excitement to this match. Maybe that would have been a great way for him to have won the Dominion match. Yeah. With the submission hold. It means the move is an option for a potential finish going in, in future matches. I do get what you're saying. He has one with it. He beat Naito with it in one of their matches at the um, 2017 trilogy of matches that they have. Yeah, but that's Naito. That's not Okada. That's my point. <laughs> it has been used as a finish. Yeah. So I don't know for certain that it hasn't been used as finish in between these sort of matches. But that's one of the impressive things about these matches, that they do do these non-finisher moves and fans are still biting mm. whenever whenever tanahashi hits the dragon suplex it seems like the crowd thinks this could be it some of the king's road stuff it wasn't always a finisher that did it i think someone also made a good point i think it's joseph monticello that when they're doing these fighting spirit finishes in all japan one of the things that they don't get in all japan is it's nearly always a case that one person 
is still taking the majority of the moves at the end and they're trying to fight on. Yeah. But it's kind of like a, when is it going to be that they're eventually going to fall? And sometimes it's not even from a tiger driver or whatever. It'll be from an elbow. Or a lariat. Like a plain lariat. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really what this whole finishing sequence is. It is mostly Tanahashi trying desperately to stay in it through his evasions, through his creativity, but by Okada keeping hold of the wrist. I suppose that's the symbol of you're not going to escape from me this time. Yeah. And so most of the stuff is him hitting big moves on Tanahashi, Rainmakers, High Fly Flows, and Tanahashi just staying out of it or just dodging the move or coming up with some way of getting away from it. Mm. I wish in that moment of the risk control that he had maintained risk control throughout the whole of the match from then on. But instead what he does, because I think it's like uh, Tanahashi hits one of his slaps. There's always been a weakness for Okada and they're both down on their knees. But despite taking that, Okada holds on. Yeah. It's now a sense of he can't escape. And Okada just pulls him up and does two short Rainmakers, which started... I don't know if this was the match that started that as a regular yeah. feature, that we would get multiple Rainmakers in matches, to the point that Okada seemed to realise that they diminished the value of it, so then he went to the money clip for the best part of a year and then didn't bring back the Rainmaker until his Wrestle Kingdom match against Osprey, I think. It yes, was. it was. Yeah. So maybe this was like... It was cool in this moment, but like we were saying with forearm exchanges, you do it enough times, it starts to lose... Diminishing returns. Diminishing returns. And it just means that now when he hits the Rainmaker, in pretty much every match everyone's anticipated, you know, it's like the Undertaker hitting a tombstone at WrestleMania. Like, it ends up being that the Undertaker's the only one that's shocked when that doesn't win it for him. (laughs) So I wish that Okada, after he'd hit those two short Rainmakers, had just held onto his wrist and pulled him up. And then on the rip call, but instead he did actually lose the wrist and then pulled him up for it. Mm. But that's just, again, nitpicking. Yeah. And maybe, maybe they didn't realize that, you know, maintains risk control was is going to be, you know, Kevin Kelly's equivalent of it's uh, through Hellfire and Brimstone. <laughs> or what a slobber knocker yeah. going on here. Or maintains waste control, I remember he would also say quite a lot. You never know what's going to catch fire, do you? This does feel like the final form of Okada that we see to this day now, I think, as well. Like, none of those moves that we were saying, oh, he's not done this before, are really there anymore. Mm. Like, those neck crank submissions aren't really there anymore, other than the money clip. Well, we're not in money clip era yet, are we? Yeah. There is a cravat in this match, but it's a, it's a standard cravat. But yeah, I just it's a brilliant ending sequence. The drop kick again doesn't turn up until right towards the end. Like the fully hit drop kick doesn't turn up until right towards the end. That was his reply to a high fly flow cross body, which was how Tanahashi had beaten him previously. Was instead Okada was able to get up in time and hit the drop kick. And that was really the beginning of the end for Tanahashi. Just like how in the past, one of them hitting the tombstone. That was like the beginning of the end for that other opponent. That was how it was for this match. So again, just deploying that drop kick in the way that makes it most impactful, and why so many people love Okada. And I think you were saying you you watched that with um with your partner. Yes, yeah. The moment she saw the uh, the Okada drop kick, she just turned to me and went, "That other guy is definitely dead. <laughs> definitely dead." <laughs> And was it a drop kick to the face? Or I don't think he hits it to the face, does he necessarily in this match? But he does hit the one when when Tanashi's doing the high fly flow. 
crossbody. No, it was. I think it was a regulation drop kick. Regulation drop kick. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> uh, nothing. That, no Okada drop kicks a regulation drop it's, kick. But you know what I mean. It's one of those moments as well where you got to appreciate the timing and the precision to do that. You know, you're hitting a moving object essentially at that point. So what Okada has to do to hit that is sometimes because I don't think he's ever done it wrong. <laughs> you don't appreciate how amazing it is that he always does it right. That's the end of one version of this story. And really, they from then on, it does seem like the hatred... Well, there's not really that much hatred in this match anyway. Is there? Is there even a moment where they do the... Maybe this is the last one where they do the bit where they clutch each other by the hair and are screaming at each other. There's a few, like, big slaps thrown around, but that's they're more in context of the sporting contest. This Okada wouldn't put his foot on the down Tanahashi. Yeah. I think in one of those, I think in that moment he realized it was still about who he was making it about the ace. Whereas I think one of the senses of the maturity here is that it's about winning the match and winning the match gets me all the other stuff. This is the first Wrestle Kingdom main event. He's won. Yeah. Because the time that he defended the title against Naito again, that was one where they'd been usurped in the main event by Tanahashi Mm. and Nakamura. And this was the beginning of him just being pushed incredibly strongly. You know, other than that blip in between with Naito winning the belt, I think he wins it in April and then drops it back to him in June. Yeah. This is basically two and a half years of Okada as the definitive top guy with that IWGP title around his waist until a certain other individual who breaks out as the new leader of the heel faction the night after this show. Currently on this show, he lost in a bit of a surprise flash pin upset to Kushida for the IWGP Junior title. Yeah, but that gets it off his, be- off his belt. Well, that was the thing. He said, I, I will not have my rematch. I starved as a junior heavyweight whilst you took. Yeah. And, you know. But maybe that's a future rerun, the rivalry. Especially if, as I suspect we might get, if not next year, then within the next two years, a part five of that legendary series of matches. I, I have a feeling Forbidden Door too. I just... I have a feeling. It's up for grabs. Yeah. Um, but it feels like it will happen. That, well, happen. we do have a loose moving part in that whose contract is up soon. So we might have a spanner thrown in the works. I would say it's more likely than unlikely at this point. Maybe if someone wins their match at Wrestle Kingdom and the other person also wins their match at Wrestle Kingdom... And someone has to come out and challenge for the title afterwards. You never know. But what I do know is that this is not the end of this series. We have another six episodes to go before this is all over. True, true. But as we say, the dynamics have shifted. It has changed at this point and it's never quite the same again. But a mere eight months later, they are back looking opposite each other. And it's the final block night for block A of the G1 Climax. And they know that if either of them win, they go through to the final of the G1 Climax. And if they neither of them win, then Hiroki Goto goes through to the final of the Climax. Yeah. And who the hell would want that to happen? <laughs> well. <laughs> uh, better Goto than Yoshihashi. But anyway, Simon, if people want to get in touch with you, 
to ask for questions on maintaining risk control. How can they do so? They can get in touch with me on Twitter, and I'm so known as Simon Cross Free. Free for the third Wrestle Kingdom match in their series. My name's Lorcan Mullen. That's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A for Ace, N for New. That's my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, Letterboxd. If you put in that gmail.com at the end of it, that's my email address. Get in touch with the show at lmtyspod at gmail.com. Lmtyspod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. But there's nothing left to say at this point, except that my name's Lorcan Mullen. My name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. And I hope you will stay with us as we do continue to rerun the rivalry. Well,